To me, there's one moment that epitomizes the Adam West Batman TV show's awkwardness when contrasted against how the character has been inter interpreted in the over six decades since the series ended. I was walking around, it was a Target or a supermarket or someplace like that, uh, I would say in the mid-2000s when the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight trilogy was at the zenith of the cultural zeitgeist, just everybody's favorite talking point. And the Batman movie that we were discussing on this episode has long been mainstay in the $5 bin at various supermarkets and Targets and Walmarts and big box department stores. So it wasn't surprising to see one at a rack somewhere, but they had altered the cover art somewhat in order to boost the sepia and the gray tone in uh, Adam West and Burt Ward and make them look grimdark with Christopher Nolan's color palette, and it was just utterly ridiculous to look upon. I think this symbolizes how, for many people who are really into Batman, a lot of them consider the Batman TV show from 1966 to be an embarrassment. It has often been argued as an aberration of the character's true nature that was later corrected by Frank Miller in The Dark Knight Returns, and, of course, the Tim Burton and then Christopher Nolan films. I've been pushing back against that for a while. Uh, this is less controversial now than it was, say, ten years ago. Not only is The Dark Knight Returns, uh, The Dark Knight Trilogy, and various other grimdark interpretations of the character often equally silly to the Adam West version, just adolescent and sophomoric in a different way. The Adam West Batman is just uh, very fun and very engaging and also very accurate as to how the character had been depicted in the, the source material at that time and beforehand. You know, the show has been rehabilitated uh, in, I'd say, nerd impressions in the years since people started getting tired of Grimdark Batman at least a little bit. Maybe bring a more sunnier aspect of the character back into vogue because this is an important... I think that's silly to say, but it is an important in the context of Batman stuff show. Uh, not only did it vault the character to the apex of his popularity that he's never quite receded from, but a lot of aspects of the character's mythos were crystallized here. Uh, the Riddler and the Penguin were very minor characters until Frank Gorshin and Burgess Meredith vaulted them to the upper echelon of Batman rogues. The Barbara Gordon version of Batgirl was introduced here. And there's also that viral video of Adam West reading grimdark Frank Miller dialogue and how that is somehow scarier than if, say, Christian Bale did. It. And that just sort of puts things on a loop. So for this episode, we're going to be looking at the 1966 Batman film entitled Batman the Movie. We'll be dissecting it not only as a product of its time, which it very much is, but how it plays into and is reflected in Batman media from that point on. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. All right. Joining me for this episode is my sister, Cheryl. Uh, when I was first thinking about doing a Batman film, I figured I have to do one at some point, just like with a Star Wars film. I uh, I asked people on social media which one I should do and if they wanted to co-host the episode with me. And a plurality of people said, if you do the Adam West movie, it has to be Cheryl. They just volunteered you because you're not on social media. I didn't see that post, which is probably for the best. I take it, I take it as a huge compliment that... A lot of our friends and family immediately were like, oh, if we're going to do the purest, best version of Batman in movie form out there, Cheryl has to be the co-host for it. So you asked for it, here it is, and you are so welcome. Buckle up. Now, why do you think this incarnation of Batman is the definitive one? Well, I mean, if you... If that's a tough question, I was not prepared. My envelope of notes doesn't cover that. But he's got the best eyebrows. We're going to start there. He's got the best outfit just whatsoever. It looks amazing next to all of the villains. It looks amazing next to Robin. It really pops and it catches your eyes. And you weren't wrong. The way that he speaks is terrifying, especially when you get to instances of violence and threats. We will be getting more into Adam West and how he interprets Batman, and I mean, this is going to come up again and again, but I think Adam West might be the greatest straight man of all time. Oh, 1000%. Everybody's playing off of him, and he tends to center everything, except for when he's trying to be distraught or angry, in which case it is bone-chilling. Okay, before we get into the film, it is impossible to talk about this without discussing the television show that aired for three seasons in the mid to late 60s. Uh, apparently, ABC first became interested in airing a Batman television show after uh, attending a screening of the 1943 Batman serial film at the Playboy Mansion. 
I'm guessing there's a decent chunk of people listening to this or that are unaware of the Batman serials from the 40s. Like, they might not even know they exist. For people who are unfamiliar with this very, very niche aspect of film history, a movie serial was a 10 to 12 chapter ongoing story, usually based on um, some kind of children's character. Comic characters like the Phantom were very popular in this format. And each one was about an hour long, so these things ended up being epic in scope. But they were made with like Mickey Mouse production values, very low budget, almost unwatchable, especially by modern standards. And each one would end in this little cliffhanger in order to lure kids to come back to the theater next week for the next chapter to spend another dime. These are very popular in the Great Depression in the 1940s, and they migrated to television as soon as that became a thing because that's a much more conducive medium to that type of storytelling. Batman got one in 1943. It is infamously terrible. I tried to watch it and couldn't. And considering the superhero garbage that I was very happy to sit through, I think that's saying something. Also, it came out in 1943 and has some World War II stuff, including the main bad guy being a Japanese man uh, played by a white dude with squinty eyes and lots of things that were attempting to at least low-key justify Japanese internment. It's a rough watch. It sounds like it. Woo! But yeah, the, sh- the show aired on ABC and was produced by 20th Century Fox. Uh, it was produced by William Dozier, who was also the narrator. He came up with the basic concepts of the show while he was reading Batman comics for research and was embarrassed to be seen doing so. He drew on those feelings to sort of say, hey, this lame, childish, sophomoric stuff, what if we sort of like play it up and wink at the camera while we're doing it? And that's where that came from. Now, there's a lot of aspects of the show that were fed into Batman in general. I think one of the most prominent and the longest lasting was the focus on villains as the stars. When Cesar Romero first showed up for his first episode of The Joker, the producers put him aside and said, yeah, the bad guy's the real star. Batman's just there to react to him. And I think that has played out for decades later, even in the Christopher Nolan ones, which I think the Dark Knight trilogy is trying to be about Batman. But whenever Heath Ledger walks on camera, that doesn't happen anymore. I mean, that was to be said about Heath Ledger in any of his movies, though. Uh, He was very talented. I I don't want to detract from that by him being, you know, 1966, this was well into color television, but was still seen as something of a novelty at the time, and we were still in a period where it was new for the majority of American households to have a color television, and Batman very proudly displays that it is in color and takes advantage of it with very vibrant, sometimes fovis set pieces, and if nothing else, it's the colors that have aged the best. Like, even when they did that Batman porn parody before everything got a porn parody, they put a lot of that budget into making sure that like the colorful Batcave and the cool looking car and all of the fake gas and stuff just looked right with that 1960s pop art uh, vibe to it. I like that you're looking at me like I know anything about this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, it's just cosplayers blowing each other, but they put effort into making the set dressing look good. I mean, if you're gonna do it, you gotta go all out, right? It, it, it's porn, you really don't, but okay. <laughs> They cast Adam West, and uh, at first he was very self-conscious about being typecast. This ended up being well-founded, more on that later. And he realized that Batman was a comic middleman who was just going to act like this absurd universe is completely normal. And a scene in the first episode where he walks into a bar tracking the Riddler and orders a tall glass of orange juice. And West delivers that line in that way that we just expect Adam West's voice to do from here on out. Burt Ward, who was actually 16 at the time, one of the few times where Robin is played by an actual adolescent boy, he had no acting experience, but was just brought on because of his sense of enthusiasm. The film itself was initially conceived as a pilot for the TV show, but production studio was reluctant to gamble on something like that. But after the first season was the seismic hit that took the country by storm and there's a slew of merchandise and it was this pop culture phenomenon. The film was then fast tracked to occur between seasons one and two. Okay, and with that out of the way, let's get into the plot of this thing. It's an awkward, winding, extremely episodic plot. The conventions of three-act screenwriting are just out the window for this one. It just keeps going into these weird side quest alleys. I mean, that's fair, but it's at, like, such, like, a cute little, like, out-of-shape person jog that, like, you're you're just really eager to see this underdog of a plot just keep going. <laughs> it just keeps steaming along. 
The movie opens with Batman and Robin getting a tip that uh, Commodore Schmidlap is in danger on his yacht. Schmidlap is this eccentric millionaire who has developed this fantastic new technological innovation, which is some kind of instant dehydrator, which he wants to use for his brewery for instant whiskey, but could be weaponized. That's why it says distillery on the side of his equipment. <laughs> Yes. Excellent. Anyways, <laughs> when approaching the yacht in the Batcopter, it suddenly vanishes, and Batman is then attacked by a shark that is very clearly rubber. While watching this, Cheryl and I both noticed that Batman punching the shark sounds an awful lot like somebody just tapping a microphone. Oh no! Watch out for all the sharks, Ryan! They're just... Let me get that for you. Let me get that shark that's on your leg. You have saved me. Anyways... <laughs> After dislodging the shark with the shark repellent, one of the more iconically goofy aspects of this film, the beast explodes. I mean, I don't know what you're talking about. As a woman in this dangerous era, I keep shark repellent in all of my purses. My business purse, my home purse, my weekend I'm an aunt purse. Shark repellent. Every single one. Right next to the bear mace. At Commissioner Gordon's office, Batman is giving a press conference. Yes, this is an incredibly public Batman, by the way. This is a Batman that just walks around in the middle of the city in noon. And everybody's like, hi, Batman. Having their weird in-the-city picnics with their secretaries just being like, I'm really glad that my tax dollars go to uh, that public service. Anyways, Batman deduces that the tip that led him to that trap was planted by the United Underworld, a committee including the Joker, the Riddler, Penguin, and Catwoman. You see, the bad guys have stolen the experimental dehydrator from Schmidlap, and they have nefarious purposes for it, which will not be revealed until well after two-thirds of this film is over with. They're keeping Commodore Schmidlap in, like, the basement of their lair, and he is blissfully unaware that he has been kidnapped. Like, the Joker just shows up and is, like, serving him tea, and one of the henchmen is, like, blowing fog and wafting fish stink into his borders in order to make him think that he's still on a boat. To be fair, if I had that level of service that the Joker gave this man, I wouldn't be asking questions either. It sounds like an excellent cruise. And he never needs to leave that room, even the pee. And maybe there's some sort of setup in there. I know that often when I'm on this program with you, I it turns a lot into Ryan explaining things to Cheryl that she doesn't understand, but I'm going to lob one of those questions at you. Do you know what a Commodore is? Because they have no idea. Oh, yes. It's a naval ranking. Oh, okay. Oh, so this man should really know that something's up, like, especially at some point when he's, like, in a house and absolutely not on a boat. Yeah, yeah. He's above a midshipman. Maybe nepotism got him the job. Anyways... <laughs> I don't know, I just always thought it was like a bird or something, so, I, yeah. That's a condor. That's <laughs> pretty close, right? <laughs> Batman and Robin learn that in the Batcave that the yacht was a holographic projection sent from a buoy. When they investigate the buoy for fingerprints, because salt water wouldn't have dissolved those, the villains use a high-powered magnet from Penguin's submarine, which is painted to resemble a penguin, including little orange flippers in the back. When it rises out of the water, it shoots a stream of water out of its mouth, like, <laughs> excuse me, let me get this out of my throat so that you can see. It's yeah, pretty great. Yeah, the bad guys use a high-powered magnet to fix them to the buoy and then fire torpedoes at them. Batman is able to deflect them with radio signals, but the batteries run out with the third one. However, the dynamic duo are rescued from explosions because a noble porpoise threw itself <laughs> into the path of the torpedo. At least that's how Batman illustrates it. We just think this is the least lucky porpoise in the world. <laughs> I can't even with Batman. Every time it gets me to one of the most noble creatures, the noble porpoise. The almost human porpoise, as Robin puts it. Rather self-satisfied about the human race there, aren't you, Robin, considering what we do to porpoises, not only with our torpedoes, but with, you know, tuna nets. To be fair, I genuinely hate dolphins, so I'm entirely fine blowing them up with uh, missiles. Okay, well, that sure-to-succeed death trap not succeeding, the villains move on to one of their other plans to bump Batman off before they commence with their big plan with the dehydrator. With this one, Catwoman has already insinuated herself into Gotham at large by masquerading as a Soviet journalist named Miss Kitka. Which, like, you have to think during the 1960s, that's, like, a very interesting way for her to be. Like, I'm going to be totally normal, blending in with all, the, all of these people. Also, ignore the leopard print that I'm constantly wearing. 
We'll be talking about this film's awkward commentary on the Cold War a little later on when we get to the thematic undercurrents of this. The Riddler is going to plant some riddles by firing them with stock footage of a Polaris missile and then skywriting it for Batman to see. Insinuate that Miss Kitka is going to be attacked by the bad guys. This allows Kitka to put the romantic moves on Bruce Wayne. The idea that once they kidnap them both, Batman will run to the rescue and that will help him fall into a death trap where he is sprung into one of Penguin's exploding octopuses. Octopi. I'm sorry. I'm trying so hard to come up with like like witty or even just inappropriate comments, but it's there's something really cute about a man raising an octopus, training him, and then force feeding him TNT so that he can become a death trap. Well, if you can't throw any double entendres out there, we already have the films one where Bruce Wayne looks at the camera and goes about how Miss Kitka is a great argument for the cause of international relations. They just keep circling the park. I wonder what they're up to. Dwayne and Kitka go out on a date. Alfred and Robin monitor them from the Batmobile. Alfred is wearing a domino mask with his driving glasses on top, which amused Cheryl to no end. It's really cute. This, like, super old man who's just, like, occasionally acting like the world's weirdest voyeur. Uh, with his little, like, sneaky mask and his, just occasionally has to put his driving glasses on. Yeah, Robin keeps wanting to shut down the monitoring devices because he doesn't want to listen in on his surrogate father having sex with the Soviet journalist. And Alfred's just like, no, no, let's bear this out. (laughs) He's like very much down for this. I guess hanging out with that, um, with Robin's aunt all the time leaves him like incredibly frustrated or... And Harriet doesn't get any speaking lines in this film, but she's dumb as a box of hammers. And uh, yeah, Alfred just has to like distract her every time Batman and Robin have to run off to do something because Harriet's not supposed to know. Mm-hmm. Kitka and Wayne wind up getting kidnapped from the penthouse. And later on, when Wayne is trapped and he figures out that they are seeking to lure Batman in there, he realizes the futility of this plan in a way that the other ones do not and he was able to escape run home to the Batcave, change to his batman suit and then he, he and robin go right back to the tavern that serves as the villain's headquarters to start the most famous scene in this film where batman just sees a big black round cartoon bomb and tries to dispose of it but keeps running afoul of a woman with a baby carriage some nuns a marching band, some baby ducks that are clearly not wooden ducks, everybody, couple making out in, in a rowboat, all that stuff, most of whom are completely oblivious to this man running around with a giant bomb. I see what you did there. It's running afoul of the baby ducks. I knew, this is a good setup. This is pretty good. <laughs> I didn't actually do that on purpose. Zing! Total accident. <laughs> but yeah, it is a very charming scene. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. But with that death trap foiled, there is another one. The main plot of this film still hasn't happened yet. Batman and Robin are approached by Penguin, disguised as Schmidlap. They are not even remotely fooled, even though Batman can't tell that Kitka's Catwoman, maybe because she's played by a different actress in this, more on that later, that they decide to take Penguin to the Batcave in order to verify his identity. Unbeknownst to them, Penguin has dehydrated five goons and has planned to rehydrate them in order to attack Batman later, because whenever five goons attack Batman, he always loses. But every one of them's got a mom. Yes, that line was ad-libbed by Burgess Meredith because Burgess Meredith is delightful. Also more on that later. Unfortunately, in the Batcave, Penguin rehydrates the goons with heavy water for that, that Batman keeps for his atomic reactor that he keeps in the Batcave. Which looks suspiciously a lot like the merry-go-round from the amusement park we went to a lot as kids. That one I found to be highly delightful. So yeah, all the goons explode into nothingness as soon as they make contact with anything. Then Batman feigns a credulous air towards Penguin Schmidlap, saying that he was just going to take him out. But as soon as they exit the Batcave, Penguin hits them with gas and runs off. But that was Batman's plan, because now he's able to track Penguin to his lair. Yes, and uh, he was able to make sure that they didn't actually lose consciousness by giving Robin and himself ping pong balls that they called anti what was it anti knockout gas pills something like that uh, specifically for penguin gas because this is not the first time the penguin has gassed them how many times do you have to be knocked out by someone to like 
chemically design something to counteract it. Quite a few times. Burgess Meredith did more Batman episodes than any other villain actor. Oh yeah, yeah, anyways. There was time now. I knew you were going to do it eventually. While they're tailing Penguin in the Batcopter, Riddler decides to shoot one of his missile riddles, and that actually knocks down the Batcopter. But fortunately, they land on some foam rubber piles. I maintain that that was not a happy accident for him. I still think that he must have been upset that he couldn't really, like... If if he killed them while trying to give them a riddle, I feel like it wouldn't be satisfying. He seemed happy enough when he thought that they were dead. Although he's still surprised every single time that they escape a death trap. You'd think they'd eventually get numb to it, but they never do. Always like, yay, we killed him. <gasps> oh, no. No, not again. Anyways, because of the riddle, Batman and Robin finally figure out that they're going to break into the, not the United Nations, they use a euphemism, and dehydrate the delegates at the, not the United Nations, and then ransom their brightly colored dust particle remnants for a billion dollars a head. I'm trying to figure out how I can, like, work ballpoint banana into that, but I can't, so just ballpoint banana, carry on. Cheryl thinks that the shark repellent and the some days you can't get rid of a bomb moments are overplayed and that the real treasure in this film is the ballpoint banana answer to the riddle it's an amazing answer to a riddle because like every time my brain thinks pencil and i'm wrong every time Uh, another aspect of this show that carries over into other iterations of the franchise is that robin's the one who solves the riddles batman is there like asking robin how he thinks and acts like alex trebek like he already knows the answers and then Robin, like, solves the riddle, and Batman's like, oh, oh, yeah, good job. And other versions of Batman have gone with this. Batman, the animated series, whenever there's a Riddler episode, it's Robin that does it. You know, he, he keeps Batman from getting killed every now and again. So clearly, that's why Sherlock Holmes is always pissed off when he's paired off against him as, like, the great detective. Because Watson's not solving all the crimes. Yeah, we did talk about when we were watching this, how Batman can sometimes go through years of iterations before he actually, like, solves a mystery. I'm just shaking my head, Batman. Having your uh, orphan sidekicks do all your work for you. That's why they don't get to wear pants, because of all of the leg work. Batman and Robin sprint to the United Nations, not actually United Nations building, but they are too late, and the the villains sprint off in their submarine with the dehydrated, powdery vials of the various delegates. However, they track the submarine in the Batboat, deflect a bunch more uh, torpedoes, because we haven't gotten enough of that deflecting torpedo action yet. We need a new reprise. Honestly, I'm never satisfied with the number of torpedoes in any movies, so this one... I knew what it was about. Robin brings up the Penguin sub with a series of sonic depth charges, which then causes a big old Donnybrook on the sub where people just keep getting punched in the water until they're tired of getting punched and get tied up on the side. This is the time where the infamous pow, bam, wham, onomatopoeia comes up. It isn't flashed on the screen as so much as it sort of appears at like every third punch or so. And it's pretty great because a lot of the like random words that they use, like one of them's like kerplunk. This mm-hmm. is just pretty delightful. Yeah, one of them is just ouch. <laughs> yeah, once the bad guys are defeated, they chase Catwoman into the sub and she falls down and her mask falls off. And that is when Batman realizes that she was Miss Kitka all along. Because he's a gentleman and goes to help her up. Note that he didn't have the handcuffs ready. He was just like, oh no, she fell and she's in heels. Let me do something about that. Commodore Schmidlap, still confused about his status, falls over, accidentally breaks and scatters the vials containing the dehydrated security council. And then sneezes on them. And then he sneezes on them. Batman designs a supermolecular dust separator in order to filter the intermixed dust. Robin asks Batman if they should maybe tweak the delegates in order to make the world a bit more of a secure place, but Batman says that they shouldn't be playing God. That's just wrong. Robin. They employ the device, but it, it winds up scrambling the languages and mannerisms of the Security Council members, like the delegate from Nigeria speaking French, and then the French guy is, is banging his shoe on the table like he's Khrushchev. You get the idea. And Batman just kind of just reverses his entire chorus there and says that maybe these mixing of minds could be for the public good, and then recommends that he and Robin discreetly leave out the window on the bat poles. Uh, bat ropes, rather. Totally yep. didn't mess up. The end. 
really is the end too. That's just it, um, it's the living end because they put the living in the middle. Yeah, and you weren't sure if that was a real idiom, so you looked it up. I did, and it, it just means like the most extreme. You can be either positive or negative. But then there was a question mark at the end, so they don't know. Yeah, that's what the Hepcat teenagers were saying in 1966, and the old people were just trying to discern what their jive meant. So whenever I use slang, I should just put a question mark at the end, and then it'll be ironic if I get it wrong? Sure. That's so lit. Fam? Can I say fam if you're my actual family? I don't know. Fam? I don't think it's working. Yeah, it's not very beast. Do kids still say beast? I just think of the blue X-Men character when... Especially when you say it. Getting into the production behind the film, uh, apparently Adam West tried to hold out for more money, but uh, he was threatened with being replaced by another actor and then fell in line. He did manage to convince the producers to devote more time to the Bruce Wayne scenes than usual. Adam West is incredibly uncomfortable in that bad suit. He found it incredibly itchy. He uh, would always comment on how, you might notice that my Batman is always moving. Oh, because he has to like wiggle because he's so itchy? Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense now that you know, don't you? I mean, I just thought it was like the manic energy of the show that had him going, but if he's got ants in his pants, yeah, no, that totally tracks. One person who was replaced was Julie Newmar, who played Catwoman in the first and second seasons. She was unaware of the film and committed to a, another movie called Monsieur Le Cop, a sex comedy that wound up never getting made. Lee Merriweather was brought on as a last-minute replacement, and when I say last-minute, they were shooting the movie when she came on. You might notice the first scene where the bad guys are in the submarine. Catwoman's pointedly not there. That's a really good job for somebody that's, like, just walked on. She's super committed to the role. Yeah, they all liked her. Uh, she shows up in the second season as a love interest for Bruce Wayne for two episodes. The Batcopter and the Batboat were specially constructed for the film. The Batboat by a company called Glastron. And the film premiered in Austin, Texas, because that was uh, Glastron's uh, headquarters. However, the premiere had to be delayed because of the infamous clock tower shooting spree by Charles Whitman. Oh, jeez. So, yeah, there are two Batman premieres that have been marred by a mass shooting. Wow, this got dark for the Dark Knight real quick. On a lighter note, the Penguin sub used the backgrounds from 1964's Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea film with minor set redressings. Like, for example, the periscope has little symbols for which villain gets to look, well, look for which hole. Like, the, the Riddler one is a little question mark. The Joker one is, like, this little smile. And Catwoman gets a bow for some reason. Well, because um, if you look at her door and other things that are pointedly hers, she gets a sprig of a pussy willow with a little pink bow on it. Oh, right. The film's direction, it, it's fairly anonymous. The gentleman's name was uh, Leslie Herbert Martinson. He's a TV veteran, unsurprisingly. He did a few episodes in the first season of Batman. If you look at his resume, every campy thing that came out between the 1960s and the 1980s, he was involved with in some capacity. He did episodes of Maverick, Mission Impossible, Mannix, Different Strokes, the Wonder Woman show from the 70s. Yay! He directed the Rescue from Gilligan's Island TV movie. He did a couple episodes of The Green Hornet. He did an episode of Manimal. I don't, I don't know what that is. It's exactly what it sounds like. I don't I don't know what that is. It's a man with, with animal powers. He's a manimal. What are, what are animal powers? He fights crime. I just spent too much time talking about manimal here. Is he like Animal Man? I, I guess. Vixen, I guess right? I, yeah, yeah, there isn't really much to say about the direction here, other than he has very clever use of smash cuts, probably because, you know, TV shows have to be 22 minutes long an episode, and you just got to do quick editing techniques in order to get all the information across. But one thing that you noticed is that whenever we're in the villain's lair, it's always shot at a Dutch angle. Yeah, I was super confused, like, because the first time, like, oh, that's really fun, it's for emphasis, but then the scene kept going for, like, five minutes, and, like, tilting my head sideways. It's because they're crooked. Ah, I still think that's adorable, it's, like, the sweetest thing ever. I have to say, Adam West Batman always reminds me of, like, as if it was told to you by, like, a six-year-old. Like, you, you've met six-year-olds and how they talk and how they explain things matter-of-fact. That's very much, like, how I... They see the world. You've said that one of your fan theories is that the 1960s Batman TV show is the fever dream of like a nine year old Bruce Wayne who's imagining how the world should be. It's filled with these incompetent clods who would fail to save his parents and just let crazy criminals run around Gotham City. And it's just this one guy in goofy tights just runs around and righting all the wrongs. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, he's, he's got to process it somehow, right? Otherwise, uh, it would lead to a very traumatic and unwell adult. For the music side of this, Neil Hefty's infamous theme song to Batman is only quoted in one segment where they're sprinting to the uh, not-UN building. Uh, the score was handled by Nelson Riddle, who did all of the in- incidental music for the Batman TV show, although he might be best known to people for the big band swing uh, orchestrations he did for a number of pop vocalists throughout the 40s and 50s, most notably for Frank Sinatra. did a number of his concept albums, including uh, In the Wee Small Hours of the Morning. Uh, Riddle uh, brings this really bold, brassy, upfront swinging score to it, and it helps the film in innumerable ways, especially in that fun opening sequence with those bright neon colors and the, the lovers making out and a weird guy in the trench coat running around that never got, quite gets caught. I've decided that that man is the producers and he's being chased because he graffitied all of those very welcoming messages on the walls. And that's just that, that fun motif whenever anyone's in a vehicle, it just goes do, 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 do. Yeah, yeah, you shoulder ship it every time. Yeah, I mean, it just gets you going. Or for the scenes where uh, Wayne and Kitka are on their date, there's a sort of um, cabaret French chanson type of thing. Um, it's not credited in the film, but it is Johann Martin's Pazio d'Amour. And the person who pretends to be performing that is Julie Gregg, who is a random actress who, who played a gun mall for Penguin in one of the first season episodes. Is that the song that plays when Batman disassociates, when he realizes that Miss Kitka is Catwoman? Yes, they bring the song back again for that scene as well, in order to sort of underscore his disappointment. I maintain that that scene is one of those reasons why he is the more terrifying Batman because it does look like he has snapped. When I first saw this film as a very small child and I was too young to understand some of the ironic undercurrents to it, I thought the Kitka scenes had genuine pathos to it. Aw, that's actually really sweet. Uh, I was under the impression that Catwoman was actually being won over by Bruce Wayne and it wasn't a total act. Oh, I definitely think that she wanted to bang him. Like, I don't think that that was an act at all. Oh, I I think she wanted to bang him. I don't think she wanted to give up being a supervillain, though. Well, I mean, that's just Catwoman in general. (laughs) You can't bang Batman and steal? Why not? Why can't an enterprising young woman have it all in Gotham City? All right, let's go. Uh, let's go into the cast one by one. Oh, I've already talked about West to a point, but once again, I think he's a good argument for the greatest straight man in the history of cinema. Yeah, I mean, and like that carried on throughout his career. I mean, even in Family Guy, they do that a lot. I mean, they kind of let him be goofy in regards to it, but. Yeah, not that I'm a Family Guy fan, but I, I do remember like overhearing one segment that Seth MacFarlane did that is most of the dialogue that they gave to Adam West, who was like the mayor or something. It was largely just an excuse to hear ridiculous nonsense with that voice. Yeah, 100%. And West was always down for it. Uh, he was just like, wait, I'm marrying my hand in this. All right, as long as the check clears, whatever. Oh, I kind of hoped that he enjoyed it. Like, let me see what I can do to try to make these people crack up. I mean, he is a bit of a ham. I'm sure that played into it. Yeah. Like, he's he's very much like at the Shatner approach to, uh, you know, taking hold of his legacy. Wait, are you unaware of Batman versus Two-Face? I don't, I don't know. What do I... We'll talk about that later. Dun, dun, dun. See, it's, I told you right. it's Ryan explaining things to Cheryl. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Burt Ward is Robin. Uh, other things you want to talk about with uh, Ward, I do think that his breathless delivery of this, it, it can it irritate some people. I find it endearing. Oh, no, he's really cute. You know, a lot of people say that they don't like puns, so maybe that's part of it. Yeah, maybe a little bit. But yeah, the villains. Burgess Meredith, who's just great. Uh, out of everyone who's a regular in the Batman TV show, uh, I think Meredith is the one that you're the most likely to bump into in other things. He's in a couple of very classic episodes of The Twilight Zone. You know, he's in Rocky. If you're fond of cheesy Ray Harryhausen films, he's in Clash of the Titans. And it's so weird because, like, he was such a part of my childhood that all of these roles were completely set. I had no idea they were the same man until I was, like, 28. Most of the stuff that I'm about to talk about here is fairly common knowledge. The reason that Burgess Meredith did that penguin, wah, 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 and it actually sounds more like a duck, is because Burgess Meredith doesn't smoke, or didn't smoke, rather. So he found the cigarettes lighted in the cigarette holder very irritating. There's a couple of scenes on the submarine where he is very visibly coughing. 
I was watching for that too. And like you, yeah, you can see it, but I'm like, why didn't they just make it a fake cigarette holder? Why does he have to be smoking the whole time? I don't know, but he rolls with it. He's a trooper. Right? Like, it's not like they didn't have the technology. His umbrella shoots out smoke. They couldn't put that on the thing that's like 12 inches away from his mouth. Cesar Romero's Joker. Uh, Cesar Romero was one of Mexico's most popular actors, and he got that way as playing sort of like a, a Latin lover figure. And if he didn't create that stereotype, he at least embodied it in our TV film uh, media landscape. A lot of it's derived from that. However, he considered the main drive of his sex appeal to be his mustache and therefore <laughs> refused to shave it off. So whenever he's putting on his Joker makeup, it just gets slathered over it and you just see that mustache right through. Once again, I find endearing. Oh, yeah. No, I absolutely love it. Like that Joker movie, The Dark. I haven't seen it yet. The one that came out like, um, uh, what was it, last year? Yeah, the Joaquin Phoenix one. I haven't watched it either. Um, it's on my list. I'm going to see it eventually. But like the, that Joker reminded me very much of like his, where it's got like the, the pancake grease kind of just like sweating off of like a hairy unwashed face. I have a hard time referring to any performance in this film as subtle, but I think you can make an argument for Romero, because he just sort of, at least compared to the other villains, underhandedly delivers his lines. He, yeah, he's very much the most sane of the group. He's the only one not making animal noises. I mean, he's nuanced compared to, say, Mark Hamill or Jack Nicholson, which I know is not saying much. <laughs> All right, getting on to Frank Gorshin. Gorshin's incredibly manic Riddler not only vaulted the character out of obscurity, but it informed a, a lot of other interpretations of it, most notably Jim Carrey and Batman Forever. He's just doing Frank Gorshin's Riddler, except even more coked up. Yeah, he doesn't even, like, strike me as, like, um, the Gorshin one reminds me a lot of, like, if a hyena were, like, wearing a man suit, whereas, like, I, I wasn't a big fan of that. Wait, one thing that caught on with this is that Frank Gorshin was very, very sick of wearing the Riddler leotard. Uh, all throughout season one, he found it incredibly uncomfortable. So we asked them to create some other Riddler costume that he could wear that would be at least slightly more comfortable. And that is where the suit with the punctuation comes from. And it's like the most iconic look for the Riddler. And I'm not saying that Gorshin's a handsome man, but he wears the suit well. Oh, definitely. And it's one of those instances where the suit is not wearing him. Like It's a wonderful blend together yeah your uh your husband wandered in at some point and he he mentioned that i think kevin smith mentioned on one of his podcasts that he saw like the the riddler suit in some random like pop culture museum exhibit and he asked about it and apparently the punctuation on that green riddler suit was filled in with a sharpie they did a really great job there were like no bleeding edges seen in that movie yeah, yeah, nice work all around. Uh, one other thing I wanted to bring up about Frank Gorshin before we moved on is that there's this persistent rumor that's probably not true, but is plausible enough to never die. Adam West and Frank Gorshin were invited to a Hollywood orgy at the height of Batmania, and they got kicked out because they wouldn't break character. I'm just gonna, let's just say it's true, because <laughs> wouldn't the world be a lesser place if it wasn't? Just imagining, like, a bunch of attractive Hollywood people humping each other, and then Frank Gorshin and Adam West are naked in there, acting like Batman and the Riddler. Just frolicking around in the background, laughing at crazy people, and then just also having very somber, like, soliloquies. At the same time, I'm reminded of an interview with Christian Bale when he first got cast as Batman, and the interviewer had asked, like, a whole bunch of preceding Batmans to give him advice, and, like, uh, most of them just gave him, like, one-off comments. George Clooney was like, if you have any control over it, don't shoot during the summer, because wearing a latex bat suit in the middle of August is really terrible. Ooh. Adam West gave him, like, this extensive laundry list of tips. Like, he's been waiting for this. And one of them was to not wear the Batman costume in his in sexual bedroom. escapades. <laughs> I've, I've heard that one. Don't wear it in the bedroom. And you're just like, whoa. That was Christian Bale's reaction. <laughs> okay, getting on to Lee Merriweather. As you said before, for a last-minute replacement, she did a phenomenal job. Oh, absolutely. Like, she's completely sold on it. They even filed her nails into points for Catwoman. Yeah, just her delivery, the way she saunters around. Julie Newmar is a very charming screen presence, but Meriwether fits her shoes perfectly. And also that Russian accent. She just <laughs> wafts and luxuries in that cheesy moose and squirrel accent. Da, darling. Da. <laughs> 
it has made me think, like, I think Russia is the only national or ethnic or racial group where you can do full cartoon stereotype in a movie now, and very few people will complain. I mean, especially right now. Yeah, moving on. Alan Napier, he is Alfred. This was his final film role. He died shortly afterwards. He was 85. Oh, he was such an adorable man in this movie. Yes, he was. I've yet to meet an Alfred that I've disliked. I mean, I I don't like a couple of Batman performances. I don't like a couple of Jokers. A couple of Robins rubbed me the wrong way, but I like every Alfred. I mean, he's a great presence, and even anytime he gets, like, a background story or, like, people adding on to it, like, it's great. Nobody's like, oh, no, it's an Alfred episode. (laughs) Yeah, I like Alfred more than most people like Batman. But to be fair, it's Alfred. Yeah, Reginald Denny, who has a minor cameo as Schmidlap, this was also his final film or performance. He, He died shortly. He was 75. All right, the film was released to modest success. It apparently needed to make $3.2 million to break even. It got $3.9. Its production budget was about $1.5 million. To put that in modern dollars, the film made $30.7 million, which seems fairly modest, but I suppose it wasn't bad. Spent all that money on those uh, helicopter pad bikini babes. Oh, yeah, the ones that just charmingly wave at Batman and Robin as they drive by to establish that this is, once again, an extremely public Batman. Like, that airport that the helicopter is at, that is a Batman airport. It was really upsetting, actually, because none of the hangars have bats on them. So it's like, that's where he draws the line and needs to be subtle and inconspicuous. And once again, you're saying tax dollars went to that, unless it's being underwritten by the Wayne Foundation, which would be a little suspicious. Yeah, but like, it's a public service, don't worry about it. But it makes you wonder, like, is it tax deductible? Is Batman Bruce Wayne secretly a genius? I mean, not secretly. That's kind of his, his shtick. But. Yeah, it could be a financial thing. I mean, it's not like superheroes are above that sort of thing. Daredevil routinely beats up villains and then defends them in court as Matt Murdock. Foggy is too good for you. All right, well, we're talking about Batman, not Red Batman, so let's get back to it. All right, the thematic undercurrents of this film. As I promised before, this movie's awkward approach to Cold War politics, Miss Kitka as a whole, but it is interesting to note that this film is only a couple of years removed from the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, in very, very recent memory, World War III almost started because Khrushchev and Kennedy had a pissing contest and some random tech guy on the Soviet side decided not to fire even though he was ordered to, and that's why we're all alive today. That's some scary shit. So, hey, maybe we should start talking to the Russians instead? Pop culture started doing that. You know, Chekhov joined Star Trek not too long after this. Yeah, just, you know, take very long horse-drawn carriage dates with them in parks, circling around for a while, while your butler and your orphan child watch. Duh, comrade. (laughs) But still, even with the whole, hey, let's give peace a chance, we're still going to throw in a cheap joke where, where the Soviet delegate is banging a shoe on the table. I mean, a lot of this was pitched towards kids, so what else are they going to be able to recognize them by? Another thing that's in this film, and just in the Batman show as well, is pop art, which was at its cultural zenith at the time. This isn't really something that anyone alive today, or at least most people alive today, can really touch upon, but in the mid-1960s, it was still within living memory, a time where there wasn't mass media and mass-produced items. Which puts pop art in more of a perspective there, because this was still a relatively new thing. And the idea that these mass-produced items are just infiltrating society, whether we want them not, are plastered on every supermarket shelf and on every billboard. And and I, I do know that Lichtenstein and especially Andy Warhol were arguing this is a sort of a positive. Warhol famously said that the wonderful thing about Coca-Cola is that it doesn't matter how rich you are, a millionaire's Coke tastes exactly the same as a poor person's coke but there is a seedy aspect of it as well and that's where you get into it with these uh, pop icons like batman because this is a corporate owned ip it isn't a character like dracula or robin hood who actually belongs to everybody this is somebody who ingratiates himself to you when you're a child and then you spend the rest of your life throwing money at it ryan said self-consciously i know i was actually checking to see if you were wearing a batman shirt while you were saying that (laughs) 
And that is something that the film plays up with, and I I do think that the look of Batman is a direct result of Lichtenstein, and to a lesser extent Warhol, that silk screening, look at me, look at me, advertising style color to it. Oh, absolutely. Like, I don't think you could dispute that. And uh, related to pop art would be notions of camp and irony, something that Cheryl doesn't know anything about. Oh, yeah, no, not at all. Not at all. Cheryl has never watched anything that was terrible because she wanted to laugh at how bad it was. To be fair, you have to be like, it can't be done on purpose. If if it's on purpose, then it usually, like, I'm not a, like, Sharknado kind of fan. Yeah, I'm not a Sharknado person either. Although I think Batman itself, the this movie and the TV show, is a notable exception because they are trying to be goofy. They are winking at you and mugging at the camera every 12 seconds. They know that they're doing something cheesy and lame. But it's in like a childhood innocence kind of way. Yeah, they tow a very careful line here. It's difficult to fall into it. And um, the only other thing I can think of off the top of my head that actually knows how doofy it is and is more entertaining because of that is the human tornado. I can't think of another one. Like Birdemic 2 is bad. Sharknadoes are bad. Most of the so bad it's good ones aren't trying to be that way. What was that one that was like super short that has Hacker Man in it? Oh. That That one was good. Kung Fury. Yeah, that one was pretty good. Yeah, Kung Fury's fine. Um, Let's get back to the fruit pies and cutie marks. Uh, yeah, uh, another thing that surges throughout this film is the sense of what I call Kennedy optimism. Once again, this is three years after the Kennedy assassination, but it still has that sort of, we're America and we're going to respond to Spudnik by making this the greatest century of all time. We got a burgeoning middle class and, and we're working on our problems and, and everything's going to turn out all right in the end. And that attitude feels incredibly foreign to me right now. It must have been nice to feel that way. Right? Like, that's just sort of like, oh, it's such a, it's a childhood innocence thing going on there that would be nice there are a few articles too about like that uh enthusiasm was like uh america's like superpower yeah granted this is mostly the domain of middle class white people but they were steering the ship of pop culture basically on their own at this moment so that was the prevailing narrative whenever you look at programming like this or you know the james bond films or barbarella or, or star trek or anything else that came out during this period Related to that is that this is a very sunny Gotham. Because of its name, Gotham is usually presented as analogous to New York City, but this film and the TV show never try that hard to pretend that Gotham isn't being shot in California. This might be the first Los Angeles Gotham, and the only. I mean, we did mention the bikini babes on the helipad. Yeah, and that's another thing that sort of drives it apart. Like, everyone is just dressed to the nines. Whenever Bruce Wayne is Bruce Wayne, he's wearing a very fetching 60s ascot. Sometimes he has these brown sunglasses on. It's very hip, as opposed to any sort of other incarnation of Batman where he's just wearing a business suit. Yeah, most of the time the suit's wearing him. Yes, it is. Now, getting on to the film's legacy, and it has a long one because we get new version of Batman every couple of years, sometimes several at once. There were plans for this film to get an actual film sequel. It was going to happen between seasons two and three, and that was where they were planning to introduce Batgirl. Uh, However, the show's meteoric rise into a Batmania fad had already crested at that point, and it was declining, and a lot of people uh, involved in the show thought that season three was just something they were going to have to grind out to get it to numbers, you know, fit for syndication, and that the ship was going down. So nobody involved in the production wanted to actually spring for another movie budget. So eventually, it was turned into uh, an episode in season three. At the same time, they weren't sure if they were going to get Frank Gorshin to come back as the Riddler. He's not in season two at all. However, they did lure him back for a couple of seasons, uh, a couple of episodes in season three. Also, Julie Newmar was definitely gone at the end of season two, and they were talking to Eartha Kid, I guess, but they hadn't nailed her down. So, without, like, half of Batman's iconic rogues gallery willing to return, they're just like, nah, we can't turn this into a movie. Oh, that would have been a fun movie. Oh, once again, it did get turned into an episode, so it exists. One of the cuter aspects of this film's legacy is that somebody made a fan film that reenacted this movie shot by shot with toddlers playing all the characters. It's just really fun to watch like four to six year olds dressed up in like Halloween store Batman suits and just throwing these lines at each other, especially when they clearly don't understand the words. 
we are absolutely doing this the moment that we stop recording. Yeah, there's usually a couple of versions floating around YouTube. It's unofficial, but you, YouTube is full of a lot of pirate stuff. So that's it's probably there. Go look for it. It's fun. Arg, mateys. All right, at this point, he's talking about Adam West's very lengthy post-Batman career. Especially one thing that Joel's been dying to talk about ever since I suggested this episode, I imagine. After the show ended, Adam West tried desperately to distance himself from the Batman uh, role. He had a hard time finding work after this. Everyone thought of him as Batman because, of course, they did. Interestingly enough, he almost played James Bond in Diamonds Are Forever. Oh my god, that poor man! That would have, like, definitely helped him. Yeah, they were able to talk Sean Connery into coming back by promising him more money, so that didn't happen. Oh, see, now I'm totally conflicted because Sean Connery is my favorite James Bond. Uh, yeah, for a time, Adam West had to support himself by doing rinky-dink appearances as Batman at, like, car shows and restaurant openings and stuff like that, which includes a very infamous TV spot where he dresses up in a very clearly homemade Batman suit and does a line reading with Jerry Lawler dressed in the Superman costume as Super King. I mean, Adam West is very, very shit-faced. Which is actually pretty entertaining when you think about the movie that we just watched. And Robin's like, why didn't you blow up all of those alcoholic Batman? And he was like, they're humans and there's a chance they can be redeemed. I mean, it's less fun if you think about Adam West struggling with alcoholism after he can't find work anymore. But there are parts where, you know, drunk Adam West is talking about, you're dressed out like a friend of mine, Soup. I call him Soup because he's my friend. And also Spider-Man, who I call Spider-Baby. Spidey baby. This very swinger kind of attitude, but yeah, no, the way to make it just sad now. Well, he had a problem that his career was floundering. Yeah, they started casting him as Batman again. Uh, they made a number of Batman shows in the 70s. Adam West was, was Batman on Super Friends, at least a couple of seasons of it. They did. Uh, Hanna-Barbera funded two live-action Justice League specials, where Adam West and Burt Ward reprised their roles as Batman and Robin, alongside people playing Green Lantern and Hawkman and Superman and so on. And it is hard to watch. I'm just trying to picture somebody in the 70s with giant wings on their back. But to be fair, I really do like Barbarella. And I have, like, the angel of that has amazing wings. So I really shouldn't be that incredulous. Adam West was almost cast as Thomas Wayne in the 1989 Tim Burton Batman film. He wanted to be Batman. He lobbied hard, but they turned him down. He did voice Thomas Wayne in an episode of Batman the Brave and the Bold. The best Batman show, like cartoon, hands down. Well, actually, no, I, I really like the big team Batman. But I really loved Brave and the Bold. It was so sweet. No, no, I'll, I'm with you. Diedrich Bader is the second best Batman. West also voiced uh, Simon Trent, a washed up actor on Batman the Animated Series who played a pulp hero on a television show called The Great Ghost, which was part of what inspired this incarnation of Batman to become Batman. It's a very sweet role that allows Adam West to actually explore at least a, a semi-non-comedic serious range. It's weird because it's a, a children's cartoon, but this might be the Adam Adam West commenting on his history of Batman that has the most depth to it. It's an amazing episode. It's one of my favorites from that Batman cartoon. And something I found out while I was doing research for this, uh, the Grey Ghost, uh, not only is that a real person, he was a Civil War hero, but also that name was considered by Lee Falk when he was uh, creating the Phantom, but he decided he was overthinking it and called it the Phantom instead. So it would have been like, what evil lurks in the hearts of men? Oh, that's the Shadow. Oh. Phantom's the purple guy. I confuse them a lot. I conf Oh, and he was played by, um, what's his name? He's always a jerk. Billy Zane. Yeah, I love Billy Zane. Yeah, uh, Billy Zane was apparently a Phantom Super fan and lobbied hard for that role for years and put on like 15 pounds of muscle because he wanted to play the guy. I mean, that totally works. Oh, and apparently James Cameron cast him as the rich douchebag in Titanic because he liked him in The Phantom. Aw, that's good for him. He's also really good in that, um... Oh, shoot. It's another comic book movie. It's the uh, Tales from the Crypt movie. Oh, yeah, he's in that. He's really good in that. Yeah, but we're digressing hard. All right, a couple of years before he died, Adam West was able to play Batman again because, well, if you know anything about the Batman TV show, you know that it was produced by 20th Century Fox. However, Batman is owned by Warner Brothers, which causes legal problems. The show get the, has been syndicated, but it was pulled off for a while because these two mega corporations couldn't really get along. 
and the TV show didn't get a physical media DVD release until 2014. Oh, is that what you were you brought over before? The like animated version uh, and it had Adam West in it? Yes, after 2014 when 20th Century Fox and Warner Brothers reached some kind of agreement, they started putting out Batman TV show themed comics. They called them Batman 66, which are very charming. Not only did they bring back a lot of the roles in there, but they did like 1960s versions of later Batman villains like Harley Quinn and Bane. Yeah, I know, that was so cute. I liked the high and there were two direct-to-DVD uh, cartoon films where Adam West and Burt Ward and Julie Newmar played their characters again. The first was Return of the Cape Crusaders, which was something of a piss take on the grimdark Christopher Nolan Batman. There's a part where Batman gets dosed with this gas that turns him into a selfish prick, and then he just starts reciting Frank Miller and Christopher Nolan dialogue. We want. And then the second one was Batman versus Two-Face. Two-Face was notably absent from the TV show. However, they did write a script. Harlan Ellison put it together of all people, but they never shot it. They ended up doing a different version with like a 1960s take on, on Two-Face, who was voiced by William Shatner. So West and William Shatner got to interact. I've seen that one. I actually like that one a lot. They did a good job. Yeah, and uh, Lee Merriweather has a cameo in that one as well. Uh, she's the district attorney who replaced Harvey Dent after he became Two-Face. There's a little nod because uh, Catwoman's in prison, but she breaks out by gassing the district attorney and then switching costumes with her. And then, you know, the district attorney wakes up, notices that she's in a Catwoman suit, and she's like, actually, I look pretty good in this. That's really cute. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay, well, that was everything that was in my notes. Is there anything about this Batman movie that we haven't talked about that you would like to end this episode on? Uh, yes, I have a few things. One, the cat that they have in this movie, they would never be able to get away with doing the things that that cat did now. They threw it onto a boat in the middle of the ocean. They had fights while they were holding it. The cat is clearly trying to escape multiple times. I just, I felt so bad for it. And during the bomb scene, where it's clearly not a, fa a real bomb, there are wooden ducks in that ocean. Yeah, no, but no, let's actually run around and fight with a, a real live cat in our head. There's no way that cat isn't on a bunch of, like, tranquilizers. That cat did seem high as balls. But clearly, yeah, clearly getting the cat stone was a lot cheaper than buying a stuffed animal. I want to, like, lean into again that uh, this is probably one of the most iconic Batman for me that actually is a detective. Like he's hunting down clues, he's solving puzzles, he's taking samples, and he tries to look for fingerprints. You never really see that in Batman in the big movies. That does remind me of something. When Toby was very, very young, he interacted with various iterations of Batman and, and gave them labels in order to differentiate them. Batman the Animated Series, that was Mum Mum Batman. And the Brave and the Bold, that was Toby Batman. Yeah. And Adam West is clearly Grandpa Batman. Oh, that's cute. I don't get a Batman. Toby, why don't I get a Batman? Mum Mum Batman is your Batman. I mean, I'm not Mum Mum, though. There's, there's got to be an Auntie Rue Batman out there. I think it's a generational thing. We get Kevin Conroy in Batman the Animated Series. I'll take him. I like that one. I know, but he looks like the Scarecrow. I've seen real-life pictures of Kevin Conroy. I'm still fine with that. That's my mental image of Batman. That is the Batman voice I hear whenever I read Batman comics. It's true. That is that is 100% accurate. It's always like really like a nice little like thrill when you hear him like suddenly like walk in and that's the Batman voice. You're like, oh, it's the right one. And listening to Dad talk about it, Dad was also very, very young when the show was at the zenith of its popularity. And he was unaware that the show was supposed to be ironic and campy when he was that age. And I remember him expressing embarrassment that when he was a kid, he used to run home from school every day because he didn't want to miss his favorite show. Well, I mean, to be fair, Mom's talked about some of the things she ran home from school to see, like that vampire soap opera. I mean, it's not that bad compared to it. Yeah, Dark Shadows, I think, uh, I think that's what that is. Yeah, yep. Um, and then, so the last thing I really wanted to talk about was the, the fruit pies, because that will forever be tied with this type of Batman for me, is that advertisement. Oh, the Hostess fruit pie ads? Oh yeah, those are like the best things ever, and I feel like anybody that doesn't like the Adam West Batman, clearly they're just embarrassed because they don't know the glory of the fruit pies. Okay, for those of you who are normal, well-adjusted people and haven't read old comics from the 70s and 80s, Hostess ran a series of fruit pie ads in various comic books during that time period. 
where a superhero was confronted with some kind of larcenous act and they would distract the villain with fruit pies and that would result in their arrest. Yeah, and like somehow like it always worked out as like very much like a, a tricks rabbit situation where they didn't get the fruit pies in the end. But we all learned a valuable lesson. Yeah, and each superhero had a different approach to it. Like, Captain America would just punch you to the point where you were just wavering concussion and then just drop a pie on your not-quite corpse. America! Have a pie! (laughs) Yeah, Batman would use trickery. Floors, ones would just not make sense at all. Because mythology, okay, sure. Like, he'd go into outer space and fight, like, pirate hillbillies, and somehow pie would get involved like a pie gun i don't know and the reason that they didn't just have a drawing of a superhero eating a pie going like these pies are delicious buy the pie and they had to go this route is because apparently they weren't allowed to depict the superheroes eating the pie they had to endorse the pie without consuming it because that would be too on the nose you see what like are they afraid that they're gonna get sued for like childhood obesity problems or something you can't have them eat the pie you just have to fight crime with it. Oh, this is before we knew that high fructose corn syrup was going to make all of us fat forever. Uh, however, yeah, that's the pies. The pie thing, if you want to look that up, because that's just interesting, isn't it? The pies are delightful. All of those co- the, those ads are wonderful. And like, you really do need to just know what they are to just embrace this era. Yeah, I'd say it's only tangentially related. You just wanted an excuse to talk about Spider-Man fighting crime with Twinkies. It's really cute, though. Okay, on that note, if there isn't anything else, I believe we can put this one to bed. Yep, no, that's good. My envelope is done. All right. Good night, everybody. We'll see you next time. Oh, wait, we forgot something. Oh, what do we forget? Hashtag. Oh. Do it. Do it. You know, on the last one, you strained to find an excuse, but yeah, we're just doing this now. You're you're driving it into the ground. (laughs) emotionally abuse you until you do it. (laughs) Do it. Hashtag Hashtag beef did nothing nothing wrong. wrong.